Hey guys, thanks for checking out today's message. We're so glad that you joined us. We consider resources like this one to be supplemental. So if you do not have a church home and live in the greater Savannah area, we would love to invite you to one of our locations. If you're blessed by today's message and would like to invest into the life and ministry of City Church, you can do so by visiting citychurch.life and clicking give. Our hope is that you'll be blessed and encouraged as we dive into today's message. The new series is entitled Good News. So I want to just kind of break down the idea of good news. It comes from the Greek word for gospel. And the Greek word for gospel literally translates out to mean good news. And the idea here is that, uh, that the way that news was shared during the time of Jesus' resurrection uh, and following was literally just word of mouth. People had to find out what was going on. There were, uh, uh, those stories would then be told from one person to the next. And so word spread that way. And typically the news that spread, and I would argue probably isn't much different than today, uh, revolved around tragedy or hurt or things that were uh, not well. And so we tend to be the same way. We tend to have our news cycles filled with all of the bad, all of the problems, all of the warnings. And so it kind of creates a, uh, a, a mentality when a lot of people talk about the, watching the news they talk about how like it's just filled with drama all the time and so the news that was spreading was so different about the resurrection of Jesus because it was bringing hope to a group of people who felt hopeless and so it was literally the good news it was news that was different from everything else that was being told and so this is the gospel and so as we are moving into the Easter season we are moving into an event that took place 2,000 years ago that radically changed the world and its story when told within the proper context is really great news for each and every one of us. So that being said, uh, we want to begin uh, this by having a, taking a look at what was the word on the street leading up to the good news. So we'll be focusing here in Matthew chapter 20 as our primary text, and I'm going to be moving through a lot of material today. In fact, it's a great opportunity for me to plug. We have launched a podcast at City Church where we've been taking the Sunday services, and those podcasts have been uh, made available wherever you get your podcasts at, whether that's iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you can go and grab those. And we're going to be adding additional content there. Uh, for instance, today's message, uh, uh, probably I'm only going to be able to cover half of the content that I gathered for the message. And so we will be doing a recording uh, and putting that up, making it available later in the week if you're interested in going a little bit deeper in the message. Uh, and so you can check those out uh, online at those locations. So so Matthew chapter 20, moving very quickly. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And so we're looking at a group of people who are uh, following Jesus because the curiosity for many is who is this man? 
Like why, why are the things that he is saying, why, why are they so revolutionary? Where does he get his wisdom from? What are these miracles I keep hearing about? So he's always drawing a crowd and inside of that crowd, there are people who are fans. Man, we, we, we love this guy. We believe in this guy. But there's also people who are naysayers. There are people who reject him. And, and so it's, it's, it's always, there's always a little bit of confrontation and conflict that's taking place in these, uh, uh, in, when you're in uh, Jesus's uh, entourage, all right? So Jesus is stepping out. It says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. And they use this, this word here, son of David, all right? And then it says that the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And I guess what I want to say is that when you're reading through Scripture, and this is really important, if you're a believer, now if you're in this place today and you're not a believer or you're somebody that's on the, on the fringe, you're like, I just, you know, I, maybe I grew up in church or I just don't know what to believe, and you're sitting here today, I, I hope and pray that the Word will, will, will come alive to you. As you step into the faith, if you are a believer, you have to be really, really careful about reading a Scripture and trying to discover all of its truth and meaning without looking at context. And let me tell you something about context. Context is not three or four verses before and three or four verses afterwards. No, the word of God is context in and of itself. This is how we understand that Jesus will be and fulfill the role of being Messiah because we saw and heard all of the prophecies given throughout the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. So you can't just go into Matthew. It's a great place to start, but you can't just go into Matthew and look at a text, a, a handful of scriptures, and, and really get the summation of what's happening there. No, Matthew would have known the word of God. And let me just give you a little, a, a little uh, refresher on this. So for when, when, a, when a family had a child, that child's first responsibility education-wise was to memorize the Pentateuch. That was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, word for word, because they didn't have a copy of it for themselves, so they needed to have it on their hearts. They didn't have a, a nice little phone to pull out, look at their digital copy, put it back. In fact, uh, they had to go to the local temple synagogue to be able to even read, or if they could read, to be able to hear it being spoken to them. So what did they do? They learned how to study the word and memorize it. And then at the end of maybe like a, eight years of life, if they proved that they were capable of memorizing this, they would transition into a second level of school. Not everybody did, but a second level of school and those that were a little bit more gifted, they memorized from Genesis to Malachi. I mean, to, to, yeah, to Malachi, they, the entire Old Testament. Word for word, they studied and memorized the word of God. And, and this was really important for their culture, for their society, because it gave them people who, who were there with them that knew the word of God. And those could be the teachers of the word of God. And then ultimately somewhere 12, 13, 14, 15, if they really were good at it, 
they might be given the opportunity to go follow a rabbi and ultimately step into that type of full-time ministry where they themselves would be a rabbi. This was something, something that was championed, right? And so when we're looking at the writings of somebody like Matthew, there are not accidents that are taking place. The Holy Spirit is pulling on what Matthew knows from the Old Testament as the word is being written. This is the same way Jesus taught too, and we'll look at it in a moment, but Jesus was constantly referencing what they already knew about the word of God. So it's important to look at things within context, and the the question that I have is that, especially if we're talking about the good news, and the good news is that a king has come, that a king has risen, that there is a king for humanity, what, why a king? Like, where's the connecting point that moves God from being the creator in the garden, right? Just this, this friend, this father, to now coming and ruling as king. What's the connecting point? So that's, that's, that's what comes to mind. And I look at a text like this and I think, I think like, what's the significance of these blind people on the side of the road hollering out to Jesus and then acknowledging right? That he's the son of David. And I would argue that it wasn't just by accident because they said the same thing twice. And Matthew wrote it this way. He says that these blind men heard that Jesus was coming. So they could have yelled out, Jesus, but they don't. They have something, there's some connecting point that connects Jesus to being son of David, which would mean that if he is in the bloodline of David, he could have a right to the throne to be king. And so this is what I want to take a look at today is the idea of, of where, did, where did this this view of kingship come from? And so in my research, I went as far back as I could and uh, one of the things that really I would say is, uh, well, the idea is the king is coming. So, so I, I want to talk about history briefly for a moment. Uh, one of the things that is problematic, and this is a, a whole other uh, thing I, I really want to put out, and, and I'll let you guys know when we do. Uh, when we look at the authenticity or the credibility of writings, when we talk about ancient writings, the Bible is leaps and bounds, uh, there, are, there, are, there are so many more copies of original transcripts, manuscripts of the scriptures than there are of a lot of texts that are accepted in universities around the world as being authentic, right? And so the argument is constantly trying to tear the Bible down, but yet by the same standards that they declare authenticity for a text within, uh, for a university standard, they don't hold that same standard to the Bible. And that's, that's a whole nother teaching like within and of itself. Uh, what we have to be careful of when we are reading old texts and, and the Bible is no different. So the Bible stands up to this, right? But we have to do the same for other ancient texts is we have to be careful about what is being said and how is it that we are able to confirm that that writing is even authentic and has, has not been messed with, right? Because uh, not having a printing press, that means that typically for a story, whatever it is, it would be given uh, orally to a group of scribes who were sitting there 
feverishly working to try to copy that. And then however many copies were made right there, those were sent out and those were the copies. And so you know what it's like to have, to be sitting in a lecture or sitting uh, in, in a, a place, even like hear it for, for a message and you're trying to take notes and you're trying to keep up and you, and you don't get every single word. This consistency we find when we look at ancient texts that tell us about the histories of nations. It's a, it's a very consistent thing to see uh, discrepancies from one text to the next, all right? So uh, inside of that, though, we, we have to, uh, we, what I want to do is I want to try to look back and see what we think might be some of the first kings that the world saw. Uh, and, and I get an idea for where did the idea for a king originate. So if we accept the creation story in Genesis, then what we see is Adam and Eve fall into sin. They are separated from the presence of God as they knew the presence of God. And the world takes this massive shift, right? And somewhere between uh, Adam and Eve and the population of the earth, somewhere in that story, uh, there arises this idea or this need uh, for having a king. And where does that come from? And I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you that there is no way for me to get up here and tell you emphatically, I know exactly where that comes from. I, I can't do that. I, I can tell you that from even just like on my own as an individual, uh, understanding, especially as I have aged, understanding the need for leadership, right? So when I was younger uh, and I worked for people, I honestly had this idea that, that uh, I really liked the idea of wealth distribution. I thought to myself, like, and, and here's why, here's why, because I worked hard. I, I have integrity, right? And so based on that standard, I thought, man, it would really be nice if everybody who's working really hard, if, 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 if for all of the world, for, for there to be some type of distribution of funds so that uh, maybe that would get rid of some of the poverty or, or that we struggle with. What I realized as I moved into leadership and as I began to have people who worked for me and I tried to implement as a pastor this, even this type of mindset of like distribution of resources, here's what I realized, is I realized that there are a lot of people who do not have a work ethic and they do not have integrity. And inside of the system, they become leeches. And when you only have so many resources and everybody then is on a little bit of a struggle because those resources are not tremendous or not great, what you realize real quick is that you have a group of freeloaders who are not adding anything. And yet they're expecting to get access to everything that, uh, that everybody else is getting access to. And you try really hard, if, if you're a good leader, you try really hard to go and talk with them and encourage them and pull them along. But at the end of the day, what I realized is some people just don't want to. Some people do not want to have a work ethic. Some people do not want to have integrity. They just want to live their lives for themselves. And so what births as I got a little bit older is I understood the need for leadership even in my own life and then the need for me to be a leader. And I think that probably, uh, and this is just an assumption, but I think that probably what was happening within societies is that you have these societies that needed some accountability. They needed some leadership, hard work 
workers, you know, if you're a hard worker and you've got a job to do, you don't have time to constantly stop and fix every squabble and every disagreement that somebody else is having. It can be very frustrating to be sitting down trying to do some work, something that's got to be done and be constantly interrupted. And so sometimes I think that establishing a leader who might ultimately take on this role or identity of being a king needed to be somebody who was wise and somebody that could handle situations that those who were working really hard to make sure there was food to eat in the winter and that there was a place to live, that they were able to do what they were doing. Again, this is just my own personal like assumption looking at it, but what we know is that the idea of, of a king goes back thousands of years before the birth of Christ. So the oldest text that we find talking about kings is something that's called the Sumerian king list. All right, so the Sumerian king list is... Uh, uh, dated by a lot of scholars as possibly being written somewhere between uh, 700 BC and 2200 BC. So it's like this massive gap of time for when it was actually written out. And something else about the, these tablets, and, and this is one picture of them, uh, they move through the history of kingship from what a lot of people look at and go, well, this is impossible. This is, this is a, 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 a mythological idea. And then j they just go right into what becomes or seems to be historically correct, all right? So what I'm saying is, is they tell the stories of kings from one generation doing things and living in a way that just doesn't seem possible. And, and then they just go right into what is normal kingship with, and, and then we can validate the, the things that we would consider to be historically accurate within them. We can validate those from other documents, all right? So um, one of the texts reads like this. It says, uh, Alulim, which was the name of one of the kings, became king. He ruled for 28,800 years. Allah Al-Jar ruled for 36,000 years. So two kings, they ruled for 64,800 years. The Eridug fell and the kingship was taken to Bad Tibera. In Bad Tibera, uh, in Menlu Ana ruled for 43,200 years. So this is what I'm talking about. Like this, you're just reading this and you're going, this isn't even possible. But then a flood takes place inside of the text and the kings that are represented afterwards live normal lifespans and you see inside of this same text a complete change that takes place. And so they actually talk about inside of this a flood that covered the world. So totaling before the flood, they give an account for 241,200 years and eight kings during that time. I, I'm not sitting here telling you that I believe this. I'm not telling you that it is accurate. I'm telling you that this is the oldest document that in my research I could find any scholars talking about kings. And in there, it claims that there were eight kings before the flood with recorded history about them. And then after a great flood, that the lifespans of these kings drastically changed. So uh, we see... The copies of these writings were found in Babylon, Susa, Assyria, and there are, is a copy of it in the Royal Library of Nineveh. And so there are multiple copies of, this, uh, of these tablets that uh, say pretty much the same thing. Again, I would not consider, I think there's like a dozen copies. This by no means creates some level of authenticity that says we should even believe that the writer knew what they were talking about 
but these are very old texts on stone, and this is what they say. Uh, the next uh, possible oldest king comes from the story of Gilgamesh, and it would be Gilgamesh himself. Uh, this is all of the copies of the story of Gilgamesh are uh, really written like uh, a, a, uh, like a, a movie, uh, a story. They're not necessarily written to uh, pull out historical uh, uh, pieces of history to line up and prove the evidence of what was happening. Gilgamesh, the story begins uh, as a king who was hated by his people. Uh, he was a tyrant. He had a problem with raping women, uh, and they wanted him gone. And ultimately, he goes on some type of pilgrimage. You may have read this in school. And on that pilgrimage, he ends up finding a friend that friend dies, he goes to the underworld to try to save him and fails and comes back and for whatever reason, his people think he's a better king now and so there we have the story of Gilgamesh. And then you have uh, Sargon of Arkad. Uh, this is what is most widely accepted as being the uh, oldest kingdom uh, that, that most scholars would accept as being having existed. And the primary reason and the difference between uh, him as a king versus what some other people might have had in the name of a king was that he was the first one to build basically a royal army. So it was a constant standing army ready for battle. Uh, it was written uh, inside of a lot of texts that, uh, that he daily ate with the military. And so there's just this concept of having an army that was constantly uh, ready to go. This is probably the first time that the world maybe had seen this. Uh, he was a, a conqueror. He was a young man who, and here's just some interesting facts uh, inside of these stories. Uh, he was born uh, from a temple priestess, uh, and for some reason she couldn't keep him. He didn't know his father, so he was set in a basket and floated down the river where he was found by a man who his job was to draw water out of the river. And uh, Sargon became a gardener and delivering his produce to the king. Uh, the king took a liking to him and decided that he would be the official royal UPS man. And so he took on a job of delivering whatever the king wanted delivered or bringing it back. And uh, during that time, the king had a dream. And in that dream, uh, he was told to make Sargon the uh, royal cupbearer and that uh, he would be number two in control of the entire nation and then ultimately he would help lead a revolt to overthrow the king and become the king himself. Now, the time that he would have ruled would have been somewhere around 2100 BC. Now, this is where I, I, I would just uh, point out some things because I know immediately you begin to hear the story and you're like, hold on, he went down the river in a basket? Didn't Moses do that? And he was a royal cupbearer? Wasn't Joseph the royal cupbearer? Like, like are, are there these similarities? Uh, the oldest uh, copies of the, the tale of Sargon that, that we have are, are dated to about 700 B.C., during the reign of Sargon II. Uh, Sargon was such a famous uh, hero of the people 
and this was not uncommon when a king just led great and they did amazing things. It was not uncommon for a new king to take their name. And so that makes it a little bit difficult in, when you're looking at old history to tell who we're talking about because they kind of would transfer all of their greatness to themselves. And Sargon too uh, probably did a lot of the same thing. But these, were, these stories were written during uh, Sargon II's reign around 700 B.C., and just as a peace of mind for you, the stories of Moses, the stories of Joseph, the oldest manuscripts we have date back to uh, over 1000 BC. And most scholars believe that Moses, uh, the story of Moses would have taken place around 1500 BC. So uh, if you were going to look at this from just a perspective of evidence, you would say that the story of Sargon borrowed from the stories of the Jews uh, and these, this, this mythos of greatness that Sargon supposedly walked in. So, so if you just go and do a quick search, this is the type of information that you're going to find. There's not a lot of detail, and there's a lot of debate within uh, the community of scholars on exactly what they accept and don't accept. Here's what we know, is that Israel uh, knew that there were kings, and they had been defeated by a number of armies, and they wanted kings for themselves, and so they went to uh, God and they said, give us a king. And uh, the scripture says, reluctantly, God did. He told them, he said, you don't need a king. I can be your king. So this is really the first time that we see this evidence of God as king and king of his people. And God's using this language saying, you do not need a king. Let me rule you. What, what I, the way that I can rule you is better than what a king can do. And this, is, this was the, the uh, instruction that, that uh, is given to the people. He says, listen, if I give you a king, you need to understand that your daughters will be his maidservants and your men will be his servants. That, like, the natural order of a earthly king is going to draw into this type of kingship. And you need to understand that when you are asking for an earthly king, you are impacting your legacy, right? And, and again, I, I could go on a whole other message here and talk to you about how important it is to be active and intentional when it comes to politics and the leaders that we allow to have a say over us because it's not just about me today and the paycheck I have tomorrow. It is about my children and my children's children and what they will be subjected to, right? And God's giving this warning. And you know what they said? They said, it doesn't matter. We want a king. And so the first king that they receive is Saul. Saul is a man by... Um, you know, everything that we see is, a, is a just a godly young man, but becoming king corrupts something inside of him. There are some character flaws that Saul has, and it will ultimately end bad for Saul uh, and for his family. Uh, during the time that he is reigning in just what, what we would really see as tyranny, uh, and people are being subjected to a lot of evil, God, because he's faithful, comes in and identifies the next king. It will not be from Saul's bloodline. Remember that typically the kingship is passed through the bloodline, right? And so Israel's first king... Saul, is, his, he does not have a descendant that steps into the throne, right? And it's David that gets handpicked. And David, go back to Matthew 20, David ends up being the one whose bloodline will be carried all the way through to Jesus. Now, David is a man who loves, who loves God. He loves the Lord. He is faithful. He falls into complacency. What did God tell the children of Israel? He said, make no mistake, 
you get a king and you get what comes with it, right? That ultimately your children and your children's children will be subject to things that they are not used to being subject to. And David as a godly man ends up being no different. And that's a really tough thing to, to begin to get your, your, your head around and your heart around because you say, well, if David was so godly, how does he get there? You know what? I don't know how he got there, but I can tell you that what we see consistency with leadership is that if lines are not drawn and boundaries are not kept, even the most godly of men and women can cross over and do things that are unethical, unfair, and hurt other people. And David did, but David repented and Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, let me tell you something about David. He was a man after God's own heart, right? Because what is God's heart? God's heart is for righteousness, yes, but his heart is for repentance because he understands that we're going to fail. He understands that we're going to do wrong. He gets that. If he wasn't okay with that, he would have started the whole experiment over. But instead what he does is he gives an opportunity for redemption for a blood covenant that would allow humanity to step back into right standing. And what, what does David do? David exemplifies this because he turns his life around. And in the midst of that, he owns the consequences of his decisions. David will have a, uh, a son out of uh, wedlock with Bathsheba, a whole nother story. Uh, and ultimately, it will be that son, Solomon, who will take the kingship. So, we have inside of Israel a kingship that is established. We have blind men on the side of the road who would have regularly been to synagogue. They would have been given the opportunity to memorize the word of God. They wouldn't have been treated any different. So they know about the history of Israel. They know about what we call the Old Testament and the teachings that are inside of it. They're regularly hearing that there's a Messiah, that there is a savior that is on the way and something is connecting the, the, the dots for them that this uh, Messiah is going to be of the bloodline of David, of the lineage of David. And so what makes Jesus a king? Why would the Messiah be a king? Why would he be the son of David? And not just what makes him a king, but what makes Jesus the king? Because the other side of this is that not just that Jesus is going to show up and be a king and be a great king, but, but, but listen to this, he will be the last king. He will be the king that reigns forever. And so at 22,000 years, he'll pass one of the kings from the Sumerian tablet, right? And at 40,000 years of reigning, he'll pass another one of them. And he will go on and on and on for eternity to be king. And this is what we understand is that we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. There is a kingship that is in place. There is a king that is coming, right? And this is no different for them. They understand that a king is coming, but they don't have a name for the king. They just know that he is the hope for humanity and that he will come through the bloodline of David. So what do they say? The crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Imagine for a moment that I tell you a story of a young man, right? standing above what seems to be a bottomless pit. His hand has been removed by a man dressed in black. And they're standing there and you see this man in black speaking through a respirator. And he says to this boy, he says, he says to him, you must come and join me. And the, 
and this young man, you're watching this story and this is all that you've seen. And he says, no, 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 I will never follow you. And the man in black speaks of another man named Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he says, he never told you what happened to your father. And the young man says, he told me you killed my father. And the man in black says, no, I am your father, right? It would not have the same like, ah, that it had in theaters, right? 30 years ago when the story was revealed that this man was this man's father because there was a lot of backstory and context. There was a lot that was added. There was a lot that goes with it. In fact, you had this, this you, you did not know the connection until that line was spoken in the movie, And I think that that, in a lot of ways, is the way that we jump into Scripture. Instead of looking at the entire story, we just jump in and out of the parts that either somebody suggests for us to jump in and out of or the ones that we like, and we don't really tie all of it together. And because of that, we don't get those aha moments that take place. And I just want to tell you, Matthew is creating an aha moment here with the son of David. Let's begin by Matthew taking a look at the bloodline of Jesus. He does this through the side of Joseph, who is his father, right, his earthly father. And in the bloodline, this is in Matthew chapter 1, he's giving the lineage, and he traces it all the way. He connects the dots from David to Jesus, right? From, or from David to Joseph, how, how the bloodline was consistent and how it was run. So they have this 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 uh, genealogy that proves that Jesus would be of the bloodline of David, right? We get to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 11 in the genealogy, and it says, and, Jos- and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. There's just one verse right here is really interesting because he references this king who is known as Jeconiah. And again, as he's doing this, The Jews who were reading this and then the Gentiles that would get their hands on it would not be as familiar, but the Jews would have known who these kings were as a part of their history. And Jeconiah is a really interesting uh, individual. If you go over to Jeremiah uh, 22, beginning in verse 24, it says, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, and so his name was called Jeconiah after this incident, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. So this guy has done something, and we just skip down for time to verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah." Now, Matthew probably could have carried the genealogy a couple of different ways, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, he writes down and gives a bloodline that comes through a story that we look back in Jeremiah where a king was told, nobody from your lineage will ever sit on the throne of God. You'll have people who will be smart enough to connect these dots and they go, well, this discounts Jesus as being the king. But that's the brilliance of the Holy Spirit and it's exactly what Matthew is beginning to make an argument for throughout the entirety of his letter is that Jesus will not be the blood son of Joseph. 
No, he'll be the blood son of God the Father. This is why we needed a second genealogy, and Luke does this for us. How? He goes through the bloodline of Mary and takes it all the way back to King David. So how is it that Jesus has right to the throne? He has it by blood going through his mother Mary and by royal seat going through his earthly father, Father Joseph. And so Jesus has a distinct and clear claim to the throne. Why is it important to understand that he has a claim to the throne? Because the promises that were made throughout the Old Testament was that a descendant coming from the bloodline of David would rise up and become the king, the king that they had always needed. Now, again, a lot of text here, but let's go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look here through verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Luke is writing, okay, and he's writing here, and he's talking about the fact that this is a, a man who you heard the stories, right? You're familiar with who he was. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus didn't step up and do what he did by, by happenstance. It wasn't an accident. He wasn't lucky. No, God, the creator, had a plan, right? He says that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he couldn't be held by death. Verse 25, for David says concerning him. So he goes now and he's going to reference what David said about the coming Messiah. And so he goes here and he says, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Luke, talking to them about Jesus, makes this connection back to David and says, not only am I making the connection for you because we've laid out genealogies, I'm telling you right now, David knew that a king was coming. David knew there was a, a, a truer, a better, a greater king that was on the way, and he knew enough about that king, and it was intimate enough with the details that he was able to write about it, and he wrote this. He said, that king was my salvation. That king was the one that kept me from Hades. The one to come, the king that's not quite here yet, the one that's on its way is going to save this king because I'm just an earthly king, and we need a heavenly king. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he's writing to a group of people who are familiar with the backstory. If you look at it in Star Wars terms, they've seen episode 
for, right? If you look at it in the terms of the Marvel Universe, what good is it going to be for you to show up and watch Endgame and not know the backstory, right? I'm sorry for spoilers, but half of every living thing died through the snap of a finger. And somehow they've got to undo that or have a bunch of unhappy fans. I'm not sure which, but it's happening in a few weeks, right? And you wouldn't show up to go and see the story and not know the backstory. And my, my challenge to you is, is like, why is it that we read the scripture and not understand the context and the fullness of it? These blind men on the side of the road are calling him. They're saying, he'll heal our eyes, bring sight to our blindness. Why? Because we are calling you the son of David. We understand a king is coming. David knew that a king was coming. These blind men knew that a king was coming. I want to tell you that somewhere deep inside of your heart, before you accepted Christ, or if you do not know him today, something inside of you says there's got to be more. There's got to be somebody that's going to show up and save the day. Because we're trying. I mean, we're working hard. We've got, we've got our riots and our wars and our petitions and our legislation, and yet somehow we don't seem to get it right. Somehow it just doesn't seem to get much better. It continues to have issues. My hope is that some, some way somebody is going to show up and show us a better way. Matthew chapter 20, right? Have mercy on us, son of David. And so I'll kind of sum this up right here with this, this series of passages. I'll bring in this, this final point, verse 17. This was to fulfill, Matthew chapter 12, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so Matthew writing, just, this, just a few chapters before, talking about Jesus and talking about some of the fulfillment of prophecies, he's going to point back to a story uh, uh, in Isaiah, some writings there, and he's going to do it intentionally because of something that's about to be said. So he prefaces this next story with something from Isaiah. He, in uh, verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved uh, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So there's this story in Isaiah about a coming Savior, not just for the Jews, but for all of humanity. So Matthew makes reference to this. And then the story continues. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and so that the man saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Something miraculous takes place a miracle, and the response from the crowd because of the miracle is, could this be the son of David? The reason is because it ties specifically to the miracle that took place. If we go back to Isaiah 42, 
right? Talking about this king. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to move over here to Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Look here. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. These blind men are sitting on the side of the road because they know that the son of David will show up. And when he does, he's going to do a lot of things. But one thing he's going to do is he's going to heal the blind. And so the measure for them, their faith for the king that's going to show up is tied directly to the need that they have. Because the prophecy said, when the lineage shows up, when the king shows up, the blind will be healed. Their sight will be restored. And so these blind men sit on the side of the road and they say, heal us, son of David. And then the group rebukes them and says, be quiet. We need, you, you're disrupting. This is Jesus. We want to hear everything that he says. You, you've got, and what do they do? They yell back out and they say, heal us, right? Restore our sight, son of David. Jesus proceeds right here. They're declaring son of David. People are asking the question over and over, why? Why are they? When the, demon, when the demon-possessed man was healed, he was blind, right? His sight was restored. And what was their response? Could this be the son of David? Why? Because the son of David's gonna show up and he's not just gonna be a king that's capable of victories and capable of leading an army and making sure that everybody, everybody's got a fair wage going on. No, he's going to heal the sick, He's going to set the captives free. When that starts happening, when we start hearing about that, that means that maybe the king is on his way. Maybe the king is soon to arrive. Jesus here says, it says that he stopped and he called them. What do you want me to do for you? So immediately the crowd's probably hushed. They'd just been rebuking these guys and now they're quiet. Because Jesus turns and is like, what do you want? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Can I tell you, this isn't just one little story inside of the, the Gospels. This is happening over and over and over. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak again. Because the world that we live in that's broken creates or allows us to be created in broken forms. And Jesus the King is coming to restore. He's coming to set the code right. He's coming to set things in their proper order and he doesn't just give blind to the sight today let's stand to our feet I want you to hear that a king is coming a king is coming and when the king shows up When the king shows up, hearts will be touched, lives will be transformed, marriages will be restored, broken families will find redemption, children will be drawn back home, 
the blind will see. Those that are wrestling with depression will find joy and freedom. Why? Because the king is coming. The king is on his way. And the question that's being asked on the street just a couple of weeks before Resurrection Sunday is, is the king here? Has the king arrived? Are you the son of David? We're looking for a king. We heard a king is coming. Are you the king? Listen, this is the word on the street to the very day that he is taken to be beaten and crucified. Are you the king? Because while we might not be able to identify yet if you're the king, here's what we know that we know that we know a king is on the way. A king is coming. And I want you to know today that a king is coming. That Jesus, the king of all kings, has the capacity and the will and the audacity to transform your life. Whatever you're walking through, that's the, that's the king. That's the son of David. That's the king that David spoke of from the throne. Do you understand? Like we look at people and we think all the time, if I had a little bit more money, if I had a little bit more influence, if I had a little bit more power, my life would be great. And David sitting on top of the world said, the king that's coming is gonna save me because I need saving. We don't need to prop other people up on thrones. There's only one throne and it belongs to the son of God. I want you to bow your heads right now with me all over the room and we just wanna pray. I wanna pray first and foremost for those of you that are believers in the room that today you would say, Jesus is king and I want to know him and I want to have the things that he has promised. If that's you and you're a believer and you say, I wanna know the king in a new way, I just want you to pray with me right now. Jesus, we wanna know you. Jesus, we want to experience you like we've never experienced you before. We wanna see the signs and the wonders. We want to know you have your way in our lives we trust you and Jesus we hope for your soon return we sit with anticipation that soon this world will fade away and your new world your new Jerusalem the kingdom that you've promised will be established we want to be there for it we want to be a part of it use us Jesus the cry of our heart is to know you to be used by you and right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna pray for those in the room that do not know Jesus or maybe you're watching online and, and you do not know Jesus. You haven't declared him to be king of your life. The word of God says this, that when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, he is faithful to save us. It's not magic. It's not some trick. It is a simple process. When you acknowledge that that longing and that depth of need inside of you can only be fulfilled by one and it's the voice crying out saying, I stand at the door and knock. It's Jesus and you declare him as king, you will be saved. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if that's you right now, I just want you to pray this prayer and you just say, Jesus, I declare that you are king of my life today. I believe that I need a savior and I put my hope and trust in you, the son of God, to be my redeemer. Now use me, lead me and guide me in paths of righteousness that will bring glory to you. Jesus, the King of all kings, 
I invite you to be the leading force in my life to bring healing to my body when it's sick, to set me free when I'm bound up, to give me joy when I am sad. I lean into you because I need you and I declare you to be king of my life. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen.